From Wisdom, Freedom, a Dharma talk by Venerable Ajahn Anand. One should regularly consider the fact that everything in this world is impermanent. Our bodies are impermanent, and so we can't avoid dying. Set up mindfulness and reflect on this again and again. As we come to accept and trust in this natural law, the law of truth, suffering will begin to diminish. Ajahn Chah would use the simile of watching a log floating downstream. It travels with the current, eventually ending up in the ocean. But if we wish for the current to flow back the way it's already come, this just isn't possible. And that's the way of nature. We look to see the truth in nature, that all the things of this world are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. When the new ordination hall at Wat Nombapong developed cracks in the cement, a layman came to inform Ajahn Chah. That's right, he told the layman. If the hall didn't crack like this, there wouldn't have been a Buddha. Do you see? These things are impermanent. It's just natural. No matter how well built, they change according to causes and conditions. And like our new hall here at Wat Mabjan, We've tried to build it strong and long-lasting, and yet the properties it's composed of are already degenerating, breaking apart every moment. This is the way of nature, of compounded things. Having come together, they then begin to break apart. The body comes into existence, made up of the four material properties of earth, water, fire, and air. Once it's come together and we're born, From that point, it's gradually breaking down. But we think it's growing up. A child grows from one month to two months, eight months, nine months, one year, two years, steadily growing up, and our parents are happy to see this. Once we reach a certain age, though, the signs of degeneration are clearly visible. But actually, the body has been degenerating from the time we were born. This is the nature of compounded things, including the bodily formation. Still, the mind attaches to the whole lot of it as being ours. This is called trying to take possession of nature. We take the body as belonging to us. But we need to realize that this is only true on the conventional level. We say it's us, but it's only a convention. For in actuality, this isn't correct. The bodily formation belongs to us only in the sense that we think of it that way. The truth is that we merely depend on these properties of nature for a certain period of time. Please reflect on this. This is the way to take the heart beyond attachment, arriving at a place of freedom. Desire and aversion, dullness, restlessness, doubt. These mental hindrances are the conditions which prevent goodness from arising and the mind from becoming calm. Have you ever noticed? We sit down to practice meditation, intending to keep the mind with the breath and with buddho, and then it flies off into thinking and proliferation, going to forms, sounds, smells, tastes, and sensations which we find pleasing. Or else we think of something upsetting, and the opposite appears, anger, vengefulness, agitation. Sometimes we're filled with doubts, or feel frustrated over a range of unimportant issues. You see, these things just suddenly appear. 
Sometimes when sitting meditation, we can experience incredible sleepiness. This is the hindrance of dullness enveloping the mind. When we come to meditate, we discover the state of our mind, constantly oppressed by the mental hindrances. So, we have to practice. We have to concentrate the mind in order to free it from the hindrances for a period of time. This is called suppressing the defilements. One then investigates to see the lack of core in everything around us, to see that this body is merely elements, not a person, not a self. When we see all the things of this world as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self, the heart will be able to reach a temporary freedom from suffering. Try to investigate regularly in this way. Regularly work concentrating the mind. Firmly establish yourself in moral discipline as a normal way of life. This is the foundation. Although concentration and wisdom may not yet have appeared, please keep yourself grounded in sila. We need to be patient. Sometimes we get anger arising. The eye sees a form. The sky again. And suddenly we're furious. The heart is as hot as fire, being burnt by the defilements. I'm not going to take this. I don't let anyone treat me this way, and I'm not giving in to you. In the past, when we got angry, there was no attempt to control our speech or actions. It was, all right then, and we might start throwing things, or even physically attack someone. But as Dharma practitioners, we don't accept this way anymore. When anger arises, we simply endure it, patiently. We may want to hurt the other person, to use harsh, cutting, sarcastic speech, but instead we just endure. We restrain our impulses, using morality as our basis. The defilements would have us shout at the other person, would have us respond and set them straight. But as we intend on caring for our moral discipline, we just patiently endure. If we don't have a sense of morality around these things, our words will be coarse and uncivil. So we just have to train ourselves, okay? It's normal for people to get angry like this before they've started to practice, but it's something we have to work with. Some people, however, have dispositions that tend strongly towards anger. For these people, working with anger is more difficult. If you find anger arising a lot, then take metta or loving-kindness or the rest of the Brahma-viharas as your regular meditation theme. Develop peacefulness of heart through the practice of loving-kindness. We can bring up thoughts of goodwill, directed firstly towards ourself, reciting the verse, May I be happy. May I be free from suffering. We then spread these thoughts of goodwill to include all beings. May they all be happy. May they all be free from suffering. This is a skillful means for calming the mind. In the beginning, We wear down the defilements with patient endurance. Then, when we're able to keep our meditation theme, the mind will fall under our control and become cool. See? This is the practice. When we first come to train the mind, anger can be quite strong, and there is still a lot of attachment. But after practicing for just a little while, we'll already be able to observe a decrease in the intensity of our anger and won't stay angry long. This is progress. Eventually, 
when moral discipline, concentration, and wisdom mature and gather together, we'll be able to see that all things are simply conventions or samuti. The monks are conventions. Men and women are conventions. On the ultimate level, there's no core behind these labels. There's only impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness. When we can see that nothing of this world is able to last or endure, this is wisdom. When wisdom arises, freedom from suffering, or vimuti, manifests in the heart. But the natural tendency of the mind is to attach to all of its moods. This is the process of ignorance, craving, and attachment, leading to becoming and birth. In other words, it's the cause for the arising of suffering. In awakening to the Dhamma, the Buddha found that all suffering which arises in the heart arises dependent upon causes. It doesn't just appear out of nowhere. For instance, when we meet with things that are unwished for, suffering arises. When we don't obtain something we wish for, suffering arises. When we forget the fact that separation from the things we like is inevitable, then suffering arises. And the suffering is a noble truth, a natural consequence of a mind that still has ignorance, craving, and attachment. The Buddha discovered that the causes and conditions which bring about suffering are a part of a process. This is the underlying principle of dependent origination. When this exists, there's the arising of that. In other words, when the process begins with fundamental ignorance, it leads on to craving and attachment and gives rise to suffering. At this point, the Buddha was able to find the cessation of suffering and the method of practice which brings it about. The noble truth of cessation means the shedding of craving, the casting off and relinquishment of all mental defilements, the extinguishing of suffering. This is the release from all attachment. There's no longer any place in the heart for craving to reside. And if there's no residence for craving, suffering simply can't arise. This is the way of causes and conditions. The Buddha found the way to make the heart open and spacious, free from suffering. This is cessation. So we need to develop the Noble Eightfold Path, the direct path. It begins with the right view, a view that brings benefit. Then there's right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. These are the ways of wisdom, morality, and concentration. Concentration means making the mind firmly settled on a single object. We can use the meditation word buddho, for example, or the breath. Or if one is skilled in cultivating metta meditation, then one can practice along those lines. These are skillful means for making the mind calm. For if we are going to develop wisdom in order to see the conventional reality of the body and mind, that these things aren't ours, aren't a person or a self, then we need to rely on a mind that has been calmed and is established in moral restraint. Today we can set up the intention to keep the five precepts all throughout the day. Make the resolve for one day and one night. In this way, we will become rooted in these five guidelines. If we learn to restrain our actions and speech, it becomes a foundation. 
even if concentration isn't yet arising, it will. And when it does arise, the concentration that's built on a foundation of morality will be strong and focused. This is stepping onto the Eightfold Path of morality, concentration, and wisdom. When we develop the path in this way, the mind will be firmly concentrated in samadhi. When the mind is well controlled, this is the time to study the body and mind. Contemplate to see the body as simply the body, and the mind as simply the mind. It's not a person, not a self. This is where wisdom will arise. And when wisdom is arising, there's continuous, uninterrupted mindfulness. Continuous mindfulness means we know the arising and ceasing of body and mind. When this knowing gathers together, it will cut off and eliminate the defilements. From then on, there is knowing present in the mind, able to see the arising and ceasing of phenomena. In the beginning, seeing arising and ceasing is the way of walking the path. One carries on in this direction until the path unifies and one arrives at absolute clarity. The insight arises that everything of this world are merely conventions. The mind is then released, freed from all attachment. In order for wisdom and insight to arise, however, the mind must be supported by moral discipline and concentration of mind, which is strong and stable. This concentration doesn't come about easily, though. This is because there are things keeping it from arising. The mind is constantly getting carried away in form, sound, smells, flavors, and tactile sensations, and ideas. These are the external sense media. And then there's the internal sense media, the eyes, the ears, nose, tongue, body, and the mind itself. The moment of contact between them is called pasa. And what happens next? This pasa, or contact, is the condition that gives rise to vedana, feeling. Pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, and also neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling. When one of these three feelings arises, that's not the end of it. When feeling arises, then tanha, craving, immediately follows. It's just cause and effect. When we're pleased with something, the mind indulges in it. Indulging in something is called kama tanha, or sensual craving. While we're indulging, if there is desire for the happiness and the pleasure to remain, this is bhava tanha, the craving for being or experiencing. It's a craving for things to continue and increase. If it happens that something is unpleasant, this will give rise to vipava tanha, the craving for not being or not experiencing. And this is how craving is born. At the point of contact, bang, a feeling arises and then craving arises. The process is extremely fast. And when craving arises, attachment arises along with it. This is the arising of me and mine, myself, my things, my happiness. This is the arising of becoming and birth, of aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. And the process of dependent origination reaches the end of the sequence. Once the suffering has appeared, though, the process starts again and travels back in reverse. There is the origination of birth and then of becoming. Attachment occurs, 
giving rise to craving, and then feeling arises from that. Contact arises next, and the process travels all the way back to fundamental ignorance, or avijja. Back and forth, back and forth, like this. It happens so fast. What are we to do? Ajahn Chah compared it to falling out of a tree. Falling from the treetops, passing numerous branches on the way down, and then hitting the ground. As we collect ourselves, all we know is that we're bruised and in pain. We don't know how many branches we've passed. We may not be able to observe all the factors of the process, but we do know that we're suffering. So we need to be cautious and apply ourselves to the practice. Train the mind to become still. When the mind has been made reasonably still, mindfulness will be able to stay on top of all the mental impressions that come into our awareness through the six sense doors. One will see that these impressions are just that much, not to be taken as me or mine. When there is mindfulness, there will also be wisdom. Attachment won't take place. All moods and mental impressions are seen as anicca, dukkha, and anatta, not as a person or a self. The mind won't go and attach. This not attaching is what we mean by letting go. This is the point of Tatanga Vimuti, the temporary liberation of the mind. Vimuti means release. Letting go of all mental impressions, the mind doesn't attach to anything. It's temporarily released from all ignorance, craving, and attachment. Liking and disliking will not take place in response to impressions coming in through the sense doors. Eventually, though, the mind will begin attaching again. As mindfulness weakens, it can't maintain that level of wisdom anymore. There is contact of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, as well as ideas arising from within, and the mind starts attaching again, taking things as me and mine. Our mindfulness just can't keep up. The causes for suffering then appear once again in the mind. At this stage, the practice will alternate back and forth like this, so we have to develop our mindfulness to be even sharper, even quicker. Whenever anything contacts the mind, we need to be aware of that and investigate. If there is mindfulness, there'll also be wisdom. We must stay on top of all mental impressions, knowing them as merely conventional truths. There's no real, lasting self. The sense of self is born from attachment to the things we come in contact with. So now we have subject and object, me and them. This person praised me, that person insulted me, and so on. And then there are the various material things which come and go. These we also take as ours. When we get something and feel pleased, this is karma tanha, and soon it changes to vibhava tanha, not wanting things to fall apart or be taken away. Whenever something falls apart, it disturbs us and we suffer over it. This is because of vibhava tanha, which is a cause for the arising of suffering. You see? And on top of this, when the suffering arises, we take it to be ours as well. When we're really suffering, we can't even eat or sleep. The mind is consumed by thinking and agitation. And all of this comes from the sense of self. There's no mindfulness, and so wisdom can't arise. 
we need to address this. With regards to our possessions, we can regularly contemplate the impermanence in them, telling ourselves, this is something uncertain, okay? It can't last. Ajahn Chah used the example of seeing a glass as already broken. When we keep this reflection in mind, then wisdom is already present as we lift it up to drink. Mindfulness is operating from the outset, and as we lift the glass, there is awareness. Alongside with this, we recollect the Buddha's teaching of Anicca. Ah, this glass is impermanent. And the one who's using this glass is also impermanent. There's no lasting core in either of these things. Okay? Contemplate this often. When we regularly contemplate in this way, mindfulness becomes sustained. Moments of wisdom start to link up and form a ring. Mindfulness and wisdom steadily grow. Concentration becomes firmer. Our speech and actions are rooted in moral discipline. And moral discipline that's well-maintained brings concentration as its reward. When concentration is well-developed, the fruit of this is wisdom. Wisdom that's well-developed brings insight and liberation, meaning the mind no longer experiences suffering. And this is all there is to it. So let's all make the effort to practice. We can use contemplation as a means to bring about one-pointedness of mind. Reflect on the conventional nature of body and mind, that they are things unworthy of attaching to. When there are no people, no us or them, then the heart is at ease, experiencing emptiness. But don't think that you can achieve this right away by simply doing nothing, not putting forth effort, not focusing on any meditation object, that doesn't work. First we have to walk the path. We have to practice. We take food into our mouth, chew it up, swallow it, and in the end we feel full. But if we just sit there looking at the food, telling ourselves we feel full, this won't bring any benefit. When we walk the path, then fullness will come about naturally, the same as if we take food and eat it. Like these grey-robed Zen monks who travelled to Thailand from Korea. At the time these monks arrived at our monastery, I was sitting next to Ajahn Chah as his attendant. He told the lay people, Okay, everyone bow, these are monks. They probably couldn't tell that they were monks, for the monks here wear a brown robe. But the Thai people are good. When the master tells them to bow, they bow. And Ajahn Chah said, These are monks, all right. Monks according to conventions. A monk on the ultimate level must arise within the heart. This can occur for a lay practitioner as well. So these monks from Korea had come to ask Ajahn Chah some questions. Why do we need to practice, they asked. What's the purpose of the practice? How should we practice? What result can we expect from the practice? And Ajahn Chah, his wisdom faculty was so sharp. Ajahn Chah's panya was extremely quick. He didn't take any time to consider it at all. He didn't even think. When the question finished, the answer came forth immediately. And he answered Zen style. The questioner asked in the Zen manner, so Ajahn Chah became a Zen master. Why do we need to eat? he asked. Let us all think about this. Why do we need to eat? What's it for? How do we go about eating? he continued. And once we've eaten, 
what's the result? This is how he answered. And they understood. See, they understood already why we need to practice, how to practice, and what the results are said to be. They already knew perfectly well. And yet this knowledge hadn't reached the heart. Their understanding was still quite surface level. It hadn't yet gone in deep. But when Ajahn Chah gave this answer, it went straight to their hearts in the most profound way. Ah, so this is how we have to practice. We have to walk the Noble Eightfold Path, and when we've walked it, it will lead us beyond suffering. There is suffering in our heart, and there is a cause for the suffering embedded in our hearts as well. These monks from Korea understood this before they came, but the understanding was still on the outside. Now, though, there was knowing within. Rapture, gladness, and contentment arose. They told us that they had been asking these questions all over the world, but until now, they still hadn't found the answer they were looking for. It must have been their accumulated merit that led them to find a teacher like Ajahn Chah, someone who could respond with such wit and profundity. So we should ask ourselves the same. Why is it necessary for us to practice? Why should we be moral? Why do we meditate? What's the correct way of practice? And what results can we expect from this? You can ask these questions yourself. Contemplate them until you find the answers. And when you find the answers, this will indicate the arising of wisdom.